0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 323, Did God Die on the Cross? In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to interact with a short podcast by Dr. Brandon Smith, who is an assistant professor of theology at Cedarville University. It was from a 2020 episode of his Church Grammar Podcast, which describes itself as a podcast which engages theology and the church in a fresh way centered on wide-ranging conversations with scholars and Bible teachers. While that show is largely interview-based, this episode wasn't an interview, it was a monologue based on an article that he had written, and I'll put a link to that article in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. But this will be a kind of virtual dialogue which will contrast two different approaches to understanding the New Testament. It would seem that Dr. Smith assumes the truth of the doctrines propagated by at least the first four ecumenical councils. I don't know, but I assume that he accepts them not because they're taught by the councils, but because it just so happened that the councils actually got biblical teaching right. In contrast, I think it's better to let the teaching of the New Testament stand on its own. I think that all things considered, it's better to roll back a lot of these Catholic developments. My own view is that the mainstream of the Protestant Reformation did not go far enough the things that they did trim off of the Christian tree are very important. They got rid of the papacy, for instance. But they didn't get rid of the baffling language from the Fourth Ecumenical Council, that Christ is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. This podcast has a lot of overlap with Trinity's podcast 145, Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies. So, you might want to check that out If you listen to this episode and you want a little more detail on some of the things that I say, at the start of this episode, Dr. Smith kind of gives some general truisms about theology and knowledge of God, but I'm going to skip over that first couple of minutes and let him introduce the central question that he's going to answer.
0: So a common question worth reflecting on is, did God die on the cross? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, did God die on the cross?
1: Why don't you say then, did Jesus Christ die on the cross? Well, because he thinks that Jesus, in some sense, is God. We'll have to figure out quite what he means by that. This
0: question has been discussed for millennia. It's been addressed in every era of church history.
1: Mm, Any era of church history? Well, consider that the New Testament doesn't anywhere say that God died on the cross. And on the face of it, the answer to the question ought to be no because it's not God who died on the cross, it's the Son of God who died on the cross. Consider, for example, Romans 5. It starts out by saying, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. So there's the reconciler, and then there's the one we're being reconciled to. He continues, Through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Right. So there's The one to whom we've been reconciled, and then there's the reconciler, the intermediary, who stands between God and all the other humans. Skipping a bit, Paul writes in verse 6 For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely, then, now that we have been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Based on this text, Does Paul think that God died on the cross? Did God himself sacrifice himself for us? No, someone else did. That someone else is the Son of God, who we know to be a man, a descendant of David, born under the law, the Son of Mary, etc. So on the face of it, the New Testament view is that, yes, Jesus, the human Son of God, died on the cross, but no, God didn't die on the cross, But let's let Dr. Smith continue.
0: The church fathers addressed this issue head on with modalists, those who would teach that basically the Father, Son, and Spirit are not persons, but different faces or masks or modes of God. They taught the heresy of patropassianism, the idea that the Father became incarnate and suffered on the cross, right? If you believe that God just appears in different forms, then it's not really a separate person, the Son, dying on the cross, but rather the Father, rather God suffering on the cross.
1: Right, so notice that what he seems to think is wrong with ancient modalism, he doesn't cite that the persons exist one after the other serially, although he might think that's also wrong with it, if that's what he thinks Sabellianism is. But notice that he just makes modalism to be a matter of how God appears. There's one self who appears in three different ways. I agree, that definitely does not fit with the New Testament. But we'll have to ask how this differs from Dr. Smith's theology. Okay, but he's going to continue here with his standard heresiology.
0: We also have church fathers who are arguing against the Nestorians when we talk about this question. They taught that the divine and human natures existed in two persons, a divine Lagos, and then the human, Jesus Christ, two persons in one body. So the way I describe it to students is that Nestorians see Jesus as a sort of a Siamese twin, two persons kind of connected together, kind of loosely, these two natures pulled together. Okay, this was the heresy of Nestorianism. We could get you in trouble if you go down that road as we ask this question
1: that's a nice analogy for explaining what nestorianism is another way to describe it would just be to say that there are two selves a divine self and a human self two he's two hymns now what he doesn't tell you there is that it wasn't just nestorius who taught this but this was actually a mainstream view this is exactly what Origen thinks the leading Catholic intellectual in the third century. This is also, as I understand him, what Tertullian thinks, another leading figure, even though he veered off into Montanist sectarianism. As Dr. Timothy Paul understands this, see his several episodes on the Trinity's podcast, the creed of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, in the year 451, isn't too different from this, In that the natures are individuals, they're conscious living things. Paul just argues that they defined the term person in a certain way so that neither of these things should count as persons, and yet they do all the things that we think a divine person or a human person can do. So, Chalcedon basically sided with the two natures side in the controversy, and it takes a lot of tricky philosophy to distinguish. What this council was supposedly getting at from a simple two-self or Nestorian view. But yeah, Dr. Smith is right. You can't have a two-self Christ, not just because it's not traditional or because, you know, some ancient bishops have slapped the label heresy on it. It's just an utter, complete disaster in interpreting the New Testament. The terms Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, these are all co-referential for one in the same self, one in the same he. You cannot read those terms as ambiguous between a divine self and a human self. To put it crudely, there's only one Son of God in the New Testament. There's only one Jesus. There aren't really two of them there, sort of coming off as one, appearing as one, using one body. So he's on firm New Testament ground, I think, to reject that view.
0: Martin Luther at the Reformation asserted that if only a man died on the cross and not God himself, we are lost. John Calvin reason that only man could truly die, and only God could truly overcome death, thus the necessity for Christ to be the God-man who died on the cross. These are a few people in church history who have said something to the effect that, yes, God does die on the cross in some sense.
1: Unlike the New Testament. And notice that these are basically speculations about atonement. You know, atonement just wouldn't work unless the sacrifice victim was both divine and human. The New Testament doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't so much as hint at it anywhere or gesture at it anywhere. It does suggest that it was fitting that our Savior should be a human like us, but it never says that God or a fully divine person had to die for us. Otherwise, atonement just couldn't happen. Okay, so what have we done so far? He's clarified the question. He's not asking, did the Trinity die on the cross or did the Father die on the cross, etc.? He's asking, did the son die on the cross? The orthodox view is that there's only one self in the incarnate Christ, and that self is the eternal divine logos. The human nature there, the human body and the rational soul, do not constitute a human self, because that would be two selves total, which is obviously one too many. Now there's a glaring problem here for this idea that the son of God a.k.a. God the Son, who's just as divine as is the Father, died on the cross. Let me explain. The New Testament, I think, everywhere assumes, and in one place, I think clearly implicitly teaches, that the one God is essentially immortal. That is, in principle, the one God could not die, and presumably, this is because of his divinity. Necessary or essential immortality is entailed by divinity. So in 1st 1 Timothy 1:17 1, we read to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever. Immortal means can't die. Now, if you're an immortal being and somehow you lose your immortality, then you can be killed. But I don't think New Testament authors would grant that it's possible that God, aka the Father, should lose his immortality. I think it's their view that he's essentially immortal, that in principle, he couldn't lose this quality, and so in principle, he couldn't die. Why do I think that? Well, one way to support that idea would be from perfect being theology. If we think of God as absolutely perfect, it seems that absolute, complete, full-orbed perfection would require essential immortality, and not just immortality that might be gained or lost. But I think you can see it implied in Scripture as well. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 13, we read, In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, skipping a bit, I charge you to keep the commandment, skipping a bit, until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. Now, two have just been mentioned, but it's clear that the he refers back to God, the first character who was introduced, that is to say, the Father. So, he's saying the Father will bring about the manifestation of Jesus Christ at the right time. And then he kind of switches into praise mode here, and he writes, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Okay, so we know Jesus was seen, but the Father is unseen, so we know he's referring to the Father. Now, what he says here is that the Father alone has immortality. The problem with that is that, in Paul's view, it's not true that only the Father has immortality at this point in history because God has raised Jesus back to life and given him immortality. Not essential immortality, you can't be given that, but immortality, that presumably will last forever. So when he says that God, that is the Father, alone has immortality, he can't just mean plain old immortality, because the Father has immortality, but so does the Son. He must mean essential immortality, He's talking about an immortality that, in principle, can't be gained or lost. So, I think this shows the presupposition that not only God is immortal, but he's, by his essence, in virtue of his essential divinity, immortal. Which means there is no actual possibility of his losing it. His dying is no more possible than 2 plus 2 being 5, or there being a square circle. Okay, but we're talking about the Father. But the kind of nicene small-c catholic theology which dr smith is assuming in his piece here holds that the son is just as divine as is the father so if the father is so divine that he's essentially immortal then the son will be essentially immortal in virtue of his divinity as well okay but then in principle the son can't die well is there anybody else in the neighborhood who could die no because there's only one self one conscious living acting thinking agent here that's this eternal divine person who as we've just seen must be by his essence immortal what about the human nature couldn't that die well no it's not alive it doesn't have a human life to lose it's not a human person the idea is that this human nature body and soul doesn't constitute a human being precisely because of its quote assumption by the eternal divine word death is loss of life this thing doesn't have a human life now you might think it's alive in some kind of uh, merely biological sense but it doesn't have conscious life it doesn't have the kind of life that a human person has And so, it can't die a human death, which is the losing of a human life. There's only one thing with full conscious life here, and it can't die. So, again, it looks like the answer to the question, did God die, if by God we mean Christ, and if Christ is fully divine, the answer should be, no, Christ can't die. He's by his essence immortal. He's a perfect being. He has that full divinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, on the cross was the Trinity broken? Now, in the next portion of his presentation, I think Dr. Smith tries to address some, he thinks, uh, annoying, misconceived statements by recent evangelical theologians to the effect that God abandoned Jesus on the cross when he said, Why have you forsaken me? And maybe somehow the Trinity was broken or he wasn't fully divine at that time or something like that. So let's hear what he has to say about that.
0: Now, one of the most common ways I think modern evangelicals make a mistake on this question is poorly handling Jesus's cry of dereliction in Matthew 27, where he quotes Psalm 22:1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Depending on the translation you see. The language here could imply that the father, quote, turned his face away, as the famous hymn says, or abandoned Jesus, somehow leaving Jesus alone on the cross to bear the wrath of mankind's sin. Okay, so sometimes when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, and we have this idea that he was forsaken, abandoned, that God turned away from him, some ideas of uh, kind of hypermodern canonicism, this idea that Jesus kind of puts his divinity on the shelf while he's in uh, his ministry and is only a spirit empowered man, but not really fully God, or at least not accessing his full divinity. These type of decisions that we make theologically can affect how we view the question that we're asking today
1: about hypermodern canonicism. I'm not sure what he means by hypermodern. I would just make the point that all canonic Christology is modern. No one came up with this strategy called kenosis theory until the 1800s. The traditional view is that when the divine and human natures unite, none of the properties of each nature is lost or changed. And so, for instance, the omniscience and omnipotence of the divine nature have to still be there. But, of course, when you look at the New Testament Jesus... He really doesn't seem like he's all-knowing and all-powerful. He seems like he's limited in knowledge and limited in power. Kenosis theory suggests that at the time of incarnation, he, quote, emptied himself. And so maybe Christ in some sense wasn't, for instance, all-knowing and all-powerful. Now, understood in a way that's powerful enough to actually solve the logical problem of the divine and human Jesus This actually amounts to redefining the divine attributes. Just take omniscience. That will no longer be essential to God. What will be essential to God is some convoluted property like this. Being omniscient unless one chooses to be less than omniscient for a period of time in order to save humanity. Some recent evangelical Christian philosophers who know how much it takes to get rid of the contradictions that seem to be entailed by a single being who is both divine and human, they actually go so far as to redefine the divine attributes, so to speak, in light of the incarnation. Other less clear thinkers will talk about laying aside his divine prerogatives, whatever that means. Does that mean he's still omniscient and omnipotent, but he's just kind of hiding it or not using it? That would also be a strange Christology. Why would he then be going around pretending to have these limitations when in fact he doesn't? So there's a lot of mush-minded thinking and a lot of mushy talk about the emptying of Christ at the time of Incarnation. Really, I think as Tim Paul shows in his first book, it's profoundly against the ancient tradition. Okay, back to Dr. Smith. And what he thinks is wrong with some of this recent talk about God forsaking Jesus and the Trinity being broken, et cetera.
0: I would argue that Jesus was not forsaken or abandoned on the cross, but rather if you see the way the gospel writers use Psalm 22, different parts of Psalm 22 in different gospel accounts and different stories of the crucifixion, you see that actually good biblical hermeneutics tells us that if something is quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament, or even an Old Testament quote of another Old Testament passage, that we should go look at the context So in Psalm 22, actually what we see is that David cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And by the end of the Psalm, he says, of course you don't abandon me. Of course you haven't turned away from me. In fact, it says you did not turn your face away. And I think the gospel writers are thinking of this when they record what happens to Jesus on the cross. Matthew says, my God, my God, why did you forsaken me? Luke talks about different parts of the Psalm. And I think they're painting a picture for us there of the idea that Jesus is identifying with David right? He's this king who is suffering, this king who is crying out to God. But in the end, we know that he's not abandoned. So we don't have to think about this in terms of the Trinity being broken.
1: Identifying with David, I don't know why he'd be taking time out of his busy day to do that. But I think he's right in going back and looking at the rest of the psalm. The way I look at this is that Jesus is both expressing his feelings of despair at that moment, and yet by quoting the psalm, I think that shows that it's also an act of faith. He doesn't feel like this is going well. He can't see the vindication coming, and yet he is staking his hope on that, even while expressing this despair. That's how I would take it. It's part of the portrait of Jesus as an exemplar of faith in God that's presented in the New Testament. For more on this theme, you can check out podcast 146, Jesus as an Exemplar of Faith in the New Testament, or my published paper by that name.
0: So we don't have to think about this in terms of the Trinity being broken, of somehow the two persons of the Trinity turning their back on the Son of God.
1: Trinity being broken. We actually
0: think through the Hmm. hermeneutical and theological implications here. We don't have to say that. Now, that's another podcast probably for another day, but I think it's helpful to think through that a little bit as we answer the question that we're answering today. If you go over to secundumscripturist.com, the biblical reasoning blog, uh, Matthew Emerson has two really good reflections on this. And if you go to the post on Center for Baptist Renewal that I am kind of basing this off of, you can see a link to go there. He handles a lot of really good questions about what do we do with Jesus on the cross? What do we do with the cry of dereliction? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's good to think about as we go through this.
1: I'm not really sure what's going on here with talk of the Trinity being broken. I honestly don't understand what the concern would be. I would guess that the general worry is that there would be something going on here that's incompatible with full divinity, but I'm not sure. If you want to check out those articles he mentions, I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Okay, but he's going to get back to his main question now. And on the face of it, just judging by the New Testament, he's going uphill in two ways because the New Testament never says God died on the cross, and given that his own view is that the Son is fully divine, and it's also correct, the Father is essentially immortal, and this because of his divinity, then Jesus will have to also be essentially immortal, which means in principle, incapable of death. And a being such that in principle, it can't die, a being like that can't die on the cross. Okay, so what can Dr. Smith do to help us think in a coherent way about this?
0: Did God die on the cross? The short answer is yes. Okay, there's a few ways we could say this. We could say God the Son died in the person of Jesus Christ. could say something like Steve Wellam says, God the Son incarnate died. Uh, Ryan Putman prefers to say God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, experienced death in his human nature. Or we could say something like God the Son died according to his human nature. These are different ways of making the same point.
1: I beg to differ here. Those don't seem like they're just ways of saying the same thing. It looks like the claim that Jesus died or the Son of God died is being qualified in some way, but it's unclear in what way the claim is being qualified or modified or lessened, maybe? You might think that to talk about him experiencing death is a way of saying that he does something that comes close to dying, but he doesn't really die. He, quote, experiences death without dying. But I don't think Dr. Smith means it in that way, so I'm not really sure why the talk about experiencing death, if that entails dying, what has been changed? God the Son died in the person of Jesus Christ? That entails that God the Son died, right? So what have we added to the claim, or have we modified the claim by saying that he does it in the person of Jesus Christ? He is the person of Jesus Christ, right? What if we say that God the Son died according to his human nature? What is it to die according to a human nature? Does that entail dying? If so, we haven't really changed or modified or lessened the claim in any way. Right? It's problematic that an eternal divine person, who is the one person in the incarnate Christ, the one self. I mean, it's problematic that this one should be essentially immortal and yet die. If you say, well, he died with respect to his human nature, is dying with respect to a human nature different than dying? Because unless it's different, I don't see how that helps with the problem at all. Is there just dying, and there's dying with respect to human nature, and somehow dying with respect to human nature is consistent with being essentially immortal? Well, if it is, then it doesn't entail dying. But if dying with respect to one's human nature doesn't entail, doesn't imply dying, I honestly don't know what it means. So, it's traditional to sense that there's a problem here to suggest maybe a fine distinction needs to be made, but I don't think that Dr. Smith has made any distinction that I can see helps with the problem at hand.
0: So, we have to deal with the fact that Jesus is God. We have to deal with the fact that Jesus is both God and man. And we have to deal with the fact that Jesus died.
1: Yes, that Jesus died is a fact of the New Testament. There's no way to get around that. That Jesus is God this can be denied. This has been denied. This is denied by several different minority reports within mainstream Christianity. If you want to see a case that you should not collapse together and confuse Jesus with God, nor should you think that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine, you can check out my debate with Chris Date or our co-authored book called Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? A Debate, specifically my opening statement.
0: Right? So Jesus is God. Jesus is both God and man, and Jesus died. Okay, so this is complicated, of course. It must be dealt mm-hmm. with without falling into some of the heresies we already talked about, some of the mistakes in hermeneutics and in theology that we've already talked about. So I think to explain this, to say God the Son died on the cross, or God experienced okay, great. death Here comes solution. through Jesus. Awesome we have to go through a few caveats. Okay. Okay. So some things that we don't want to say when we say this, some things to think about when we make this conclusion. Okay. Okay. First, let's remember the hypostatic union. Let's remember that Jesus Christ is two natures in one person, fully God, fully man. This is the most foundational theological principle of Christology, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, hypostatic union. Okay. Forget this and you'll run toward all sorts of age old heresies.
1: Fully God and fully man. Well, as I show in that opening chapter, which I just mentioned, it's pretty clear that there are four contradictions which are very straightforwardly entailed by suggesting that there is one and the same person who is both human and divine in the way that the one God is divine. But if it implies contradictions, it can't be true. And I think that the way he summarized the tradition there was a little shallow. He left out some very important bits. Yes, you're supposed to say that there's one person here, and you're supposed to say that that one person is fully God and fully man, or fully divine and fully human. Yes, those are the things you're supposed to say. But the reason you're supposed to say them is that there's this eternal divine person, the Logos, the word of John 1. And this Logos, quote, assumed, or entered into a, quote, hypostatic union, some sort of mysterious relation with, quote, a complete human nature. The complete human nature is hypostatic, which is to say, it is not a human self. This body and this soul do not constitute a human being. But he's got the parts that would constitute a human being had those parts not been, quote, assumed. So you have this eternal divine person, and you're supposed to be able to say fully human of this eternal divine person because it's somehow entered into a union which is indescribable, with this body and rational soul, which don't constitute a human. Now, it's really hard to see why just having those parts, being in some relationship with those components, makes one human. So, I've given the example before in some of my lectures, that if a demon could kick my soul out of my body, even, let's say, destroy my soul entirely so that it doesn't exist anywhere, And then the demon uh, takes over and is now embodied in my body that wouldn't make that demon a human that would make the demon appear to be human because it would now be operating through this human body and presumably talking in some scary movie voice like in the exorcist but i digress right so just getting a human body doesn't make one human now that seems obvious But it's just about as obvious that if a demon could separate my body and soul in some way so that they no longer constitute a human person, but they still both exist. So somehow the soul has been deactivated, the person, Dale Tuggy, no longer exists, the human person no longer exists, but the soul and body are still there. And then the demon takes over the body Still, that doesn't make it human just because it's somehow lugging around a soul and a human body doesn't make it a human being. It makes it a demon that's embodied in a human body and somehow has this soul. I'm not quite sure what it's doing with it, but anyway, there's not a human person there. There's just a demonic person. And it doesn't matter that there used to be a human person here, right? If God and his omnipotence should take an individual body and soul and enter them into a mysterious union with a demon, that wouldn't make the demon truly, really human. It would make the demon maybe impossible for us to tell apart from a real human, but it wouldn't make a human, right? Neither would it make an essentially eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, uncreated, perfect divine person into a real human. It's hard to see that there's a real human in this picture anywhere. There are the parts that would constitute a human, this is the theory, if not for the assumption of those parts by this divine person. So yeah, you're supposed to be divine, you're supposed to say fully human and say that he's man for the reason I just said. Sometimes they will say, traditional theologians, that this Christ is man, but not a man, meaning that you're supposed to say the whole composite is human, but there's not strictly a human person there. If there were a human person there, it'd be constituted by the body and soul, and that'd be a second person in the deal. And that is obviously one too many, as we discussed. So yeah, the small C Catholic traditions are a good bit more problematic than he's letting on here. And they go a good bit farther beyond the Bible than he kind of clues you into here. But let's let him continue.
0: Okay, second, his divine nature did not die or cease to exist. So when we say that God died on the cross or experienced death on the cross, we don't want to say his divine nature died or ceased to exist. Okay, God the Son in his divine nature continued to exist even after his death on the cross, continued to sustain the universe one person of the Trinity cannot cease to exist for any time without indicating mutability or changeability in God's nature.
1: Now when he says that a divine person could not die or cease to exist, I take it he's saying one thing there and not two. So when he says that something dies, I think he means that it ceases to exist. I think there's some serious conceptual confusion going on here. It's not part of the ordinary concept of death that it involves ceasing to exist. When you're at your grandma's funeral, if you're a Christian and you believe in an intermediate existence, you still think grandma's dead. And that shows you that your concept of being dead does not imply ceasing to exist. Now, maybe you're at the funeral with your cousin, who's an atheist and a naturalist, and he also agrees with you that grandma is dead. Your concept of death isn't really different. It's the concept of, in some sense, permanently, not just momentarily, losing all or most of one's normal life functions grandma is no longer walking talking hugging baking cookies breathing using her eyes hands etc those functions have all ceased her heart is not beating her body has assumed room temperature she's dead it's a further part of one's worldview. what else is involved in death Your naturalist friend is going to think, probably because humans are just merely physical or biological creatures, that death does entail ceasing to exist. At some point when one is fully dead, one thereby must have ceased to exist. Again, if you're a Christian and you believe in an intermediate state, you don't think that being dead implies having ceased to exist. Because you think grandma really is dead. It's not an illusion that she's dead. She's not really alive. No, she's really dead. She really has lost most of her normal human life functions even if she now exists as a disembodied soul and maybe can still do some things who knows what exactly but you know she's not going to be alive again until she gets back those normal functions normal being defined relative to the human kind so to say that god is immortal is to say that god can't die but conceptually a thing might die and yet still exist so what rules out God not being able to cease existing is his quality of necessary existence, like philosophical theologians talk about, something entailed by his aseity. If you exist necessarily, then you do exist and there is no possibility of your not existing. You just, so to speak, exist no matter what. In principle, you couldn't fail to exist. That's what it is that ensures that a fully divine being can never go out of existence. But what ensures that a fully divine being can never die isn't that, because again, conceivably one might die and yet still exist. Rather, it's essential immortality that implies that a fully divine being can never die. That is, never lose all or most of the life functions that are normal for a divine being. So, I think he's right that a fully divine being can't cease to exist, but it's because of having the quality necessary existence. Again, I think he's using the term death synonymously with ceasing to exist, but I don't think that's right. That's a kind of modern habit, uh, which makes the most sense on naturalistic assumptions. Now, even though he's just said that, hey, the divine nature doesn't cease to exist, he's about to say that, well, the human nature can't cease to exist as well. Okay, but what does this have to do with dying? Because a thing might be dead conceivably and still exist.
0: One person of the Trinity cannot cease to exist for any time without indicating mutability or changeability in God's nature. Now, of course, we know that God is immutable, incapable of change. So it would certainly jeopardize fundamental affirmations about the doctrine of God to assert that on the cross, some sort of uh, separation, some sort of loss of Trinitarian relations some sort of death of divine nature happened on the cross. Okay, we don't want to say that God is immutable, God is incapable of change. So we don't want to start talking about his nature changing or being altered in some way on the cross, that his divine nature died or ceased to exist.
1: Okay, well, your nature changing is one thing, but just changing at all is another. And it is traditional for theologians to say that God is absolutely immutable, just by his essence incapable of any sort of change. But that's pretty hard to reconcile with a whole Christian worldview. Think about it. Before you repented, God had not yet forgiven you. When you repented and confessed Christ, then God had forgiven you. So he went from not having forgiven you to having forgiven you. It's not a change in nature or essential qualities, but it is a change. It's not the kind of change that would make him greater or lesser in value or anything like that. But just to say that it's immutability that requires that God can't die presupposes something controversial and not clearly taught in Scripture. Didn't God at a point in time send His Son? So, He went from not having sent His Son to having sent His Son. That's a kind of change. I think the traditional strict divine timelessness theory about God is extremely problematic and extremely hard to support with Scripture.
0: Third, and relatedly, neither God the Father nor God the Holy Spirit died on the cross. Okay, the Trinity was not all of a sudden in disarray, confused, conflated, separated, out of order. The Father sent the Son. He did not send himself. The Holy Spirit did not himself put on flesh, even though he was clearly involved in the incarnation at mm, conception.
1: Okay, yeah, standard stuff here. We dispel
0: any notions of other Trinitarian persons dying on the cross when we talk about this. Okay, hey, so we don't want to go on the one end and say the Father uh, died on the cross, the Father turned his face away from Jesus. On both of those, we have an idea of the Trinitarian relations being messed up, being confused, being broken. We don't want to do any of that.
1: When the Trendy's podcast returns, did Jesus's body die?
0: Fourth, the body of God the Son, in his human nature, died and was buried. Okay, so with any human death, Jesus' body was separated from his soul or spirit, and his soul did not cease to exist. Okay, so he goes into the ground, body in the grave, soul, spirit still exists. In his resurrection, his body and soul were rejoined together just like ours one day, right? If we die before Jesus returns, our bodies will go into the grave as we await the final resurrection. But we will not cease to exist because our soul will be in the presence of the Lord or not in the presence of the Lord.
1: I'm not sure now why he's switching from did the son die to did the son's human body die. Now, in some sense, a body which is not a person might die. If you have somebody who, so to speak, was in a vegetative state, and let's suppose something which I don't think is clear in our experience, but let's suppose it's true that the body is being propped up and kept going, but there actually isn't a human person there. Maybe the human person doesn't exist anymore, or maybe the soul has left the body or something like that, but it is conceivable that you could have uh, just a merely biological life that doesn't involve any conscious life that's distinctive of a human, and then even though there's no person there, yeah, the body could die anyway. Now, there's a sense in which that wouldn't be a human death. A human death is a loss of a human life that body doesn't have a human life. Only a human person has a human life. Human lives consist typically of, you know, walking, talking, moving around, entering into personal relationships with others, eating, drinking, sleeping. Human life is performed by a human person, not just a human body that isn't a person. Okay, but again, in his Christology... He's got an eternal divine person, which looks like, in virtue of being fully divine, just in principle can't die. And yet he says, Yeah, that guy died. I'm not sure why he can say that, given his views. I can say that because for me, Jesus is a human being. And he was at that time mortal. He was only after his resurrection made immortal. At no time was he essentially immortal because he was not fully divine. Because that's just not taught in Scripture anywhere. So, why is he talking about the body dying? Is it that he senses that, well, the one self here, that guy surely can't die, but something's got to die here, or we're just going to have to say this is a sham crucifixion, there is nothing that dies here. Well, but even if the body dies, that's not the loss of a human life. That's not the same as a human person dying. Granted, part of what it is for a human person to die is for their body to die, but you could have the body dying without the person dying. And in fact, there is no human person in this Christology. So yeah, on a standard dualist picture, when a person dies, the soul and body are separated, and then before too long, the body just really isn't a human body anymore. So the human body typically gets destroyed. It just falls apart, ceases to be a human body. But most dualists, uh, at least who believe in the intermediate state, think the soul can continue on. Yeah, but the person's still dead. They have lost all or most of their normal life functions. If souls just go inert upon the point of full death, then they've lost all their functions and they still exist, but they can't do anything. If there's an intermediate state where one can do some things, then they could still be active, but they really wouldn't have, properly speaking, a human life. So they would still really be dead. But again, this anhypostatic human nature never was alive. So what does it matter if one of these two parts still exists? It never was alive. Death is the loss of life. This thing could never die. It didn't die. If it was separated from the eternal divine person, I guess that would kind of look like a human death, but it wouldn't be one. As far as the normal life functions of that divine person, those will just keep on rolling as before, right? Because they don't depend on a human body and a rational soul. So it looks like a pseudo death. It's the separation of a human body from the anhypostatic soul as well as from the eternal divine person. But there doesn't seem to be someone here who died, according to the ordinary concept of death that I explained. Certainly not the eternal divine person, but not the body and not the soul either. None of those things has a human life to lose. That's a problem. That just goes right against the grain of the New Testament, which is what we're supposedly trying to faithfully preserve the teaching of here.
0: Okay, the immortality of the soul is well attested in biblical language. Mm. There are phrases in the Bible like, the perishable body dies but the soul spirit will be with him in paradise to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My soul will live with him even in death, right? These are biblical language saying that even if our body dies, even if we die in this life, our soul spirit lives on and will ultimately be in the presence of God or separated from God.
1: Now, I think he's using immortality of the soul simply to mean that after one is fully dead, one's soul will still exist, Traditionally, immortality of the soul was much stronger. There's an argument from Plato, which I won't go into, that it's impossible for a soul to come into existence or go out of existence and a soul is just you know essentially alive. And so uh, souls have always been alive and always will be and they have always existed and they always will. Be. That's not what he means by the immortality of the soul. I think he just means. That the person can still exist after death because their one essential part, their soul, still exists. Okay, that might help with coming up with a coherent doctrine of resurrection, but I don't think it helps with any of the issues that we're worrying about in this episode.
0: The Christian tradition has all taught this in pretty clear unanimity. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Athanasius, Cyril, yeah, Gregory of all Exaustim, dualists. Augustine, all teach the immortality of the soul. Mm. So why would the fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ be any different? Okay. He's a unique human, but he's still fully and truly human. When I talk to my students about Jesus's humanity, I want to say, yes, he is a unique human. Yes, he is God in the flesh. Okay. There are all these implications of that, but nonetheless, he is still fully and truly human. So we need to account for this when we talk about the death and burial of Christ.
1: Yeah. It's not clear that he has a human self in the picture if he's sticking with the small C Catholic picture with that traditional theory. I know the intention is to have a fully human person there, but intentions are not enough.
0: Therefore, finally the human body of God, the son died, but the hypostatic union of two natures was never separated, broken or compromised.
1: Okay. Again, I think when he says died, he means cease to exist. Like it's, Not a body anymore, but it's just an ex-body. So when the body assumed room temperature and ceased its normal biological functions, again, it ceased to exist, but some of the parts that used to compose it, I guess, still existed. But that's okay, because the eternal divine nature, of course, would still exist. So it's not like the sun has gone out of existence. And he adds here that the soul, the rational human soul, still exists too. But again, it's hard to see that there's been a real death here. Because there's only one person here it's not a human person so it didn't have a human life didn't have a human life to lose there is a divine person here but a divine person as fully divine should be essentially immortal and so then that thing couldn't have died its life functions would be just uninterrupted by all of this terrible crucifixion business
0: so we affirm that jesus christ is the god man hypostatic union He never ceased to be the God-man in his birth. He never ceased to be the God-man in his ministry. He never ceased to be the God-man in death and resurrection. He now stands ascended in heaven as our mediator, as the God-man, and will return one day as the God-man to join our souls or spirits to our resurrected body. Therefore, we must affirm that God the Son died that day on Golgotha, but he in no way, shape, or form ceased to exist or experienced ontological separation from the Father or the Spirit. Okay, so as we've already mentioned, human nature doesn't cease to exist in death. Rather, our body perishes, but our soul lives to God. Jesus' human nature, like ours, still existed in his death because his soul is immortal. And thus, his human nature still lives even if his body is dead. If Jesus' human nature died or ceased to exist, in some sense, for three days, this would indicate not only a death of his soul, that he literally wasn't around for three days, But also a split in his person, right? Only half of Jesus would exist for three days while his body was in the tomb. If either his divine nature or his human nature ceased to exist, we'd just have a half Jesus. We'd have a break in the hypostatic union.
1: Right. So he wants to say the hypostatic union or this assumption relation still continues on after death because... Uh, If the body's not there, still the soul, the uh, human type of soul is there, and so that can still be united. So, then in dying, uh, the composite Christ did not cease to be human. But of course, the problem is, how could a fully divine being die at all?
0: So, we need to affirm then that the human soul of Jesus remained alive, thus his nature did not die, but that he experienced a real human death like all of us, body in the ground, soul with the Lord. And his resurrected body, like ours one day, was raised and perishable, and he now lives as the God-man who will never die again. Yes, God came and rescued us. God, in Christ, substituted himself for us. He didn't send a messenger. He didn't sacrifice his nature or character or power. He didn't pretend to die on the cross. It wasn't a mirage. No, he himself put his nature, character, and power on full display on the cross. His cross was a victory chariot disguised as a torture device. And that is good news.
1: Okay, so in conclusion, a few brief comments. Notice how central the term God-man is for him. Quite different than the New Testament. That's a term that doesn't appear in the New Testament. And as I argued in that debate book, I think it describes an impossibility. Nothing could be fully human and fully divine for multiple reasons. I'll just refer you to those arguments. They start on page 24 in the book. And I think he tips his hand here as to what sort of Trinity theory he accepts, because God the Son dying, or the Son of God dying, this God-man, this just counts as God himself dying. Which God? The triune God. He didn't send somebody else, he came himself and died. The only way I can make sense of this is that his view is that while there are three distinct divine persons, whatever is meant by person there, not exactly sure. Way of existing, uh, essential personality, not sure. But he would seem to be saying that there is just one he, one self among the Trinity. The whole thing, the Trinity, amounts to a he. Not a single person, whatever person is, but a single self, a single he. And so yeah, God himself died. And this brings us full circle back to the beginning of the episode. New Testament doesn't say anywhere that God died for our sins or that he came himself to be the sacrifice to die for us. It clearly says that he sent someone else, right? Just think about many people's favorite Bible verse, John 3, 16, for God, that is to say the father, so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life It's the Son who came to play this role of Messiah. It's the Son, not God himself, who died on the cross. Again, see Romans 5 on that. Or, just look at any of the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels. Nowhere in there is there portrayed the death of God himself. Everywhere in those accounts, we see a real man who had a real human life, really losing that human life, really dying. What we don't see there is an eternal, perfect, divine person who is incapable of death, shedding a human body whilst still remaining mysteriously united to a rational soul which is not a human person. Nope, there's one Christ there. That Christ is the man. That Christ died. His body assumed room temperature. He lost his life. Thank God. He was given back his life, and he won't ever lose it again, because he's been raised to immortality and exalted to God's right hand. So this Easter, and every Easter, celebrate that. We don't need an incoherent God-man myth about a being who, in principle, can't die, undergoing something that kind of looks like a human death, but isn't. The New Testament Jesus is a real man who really died, and who really was given back his life by his God and our God, the same one who will someday give us back our lives, we who have trusted in his Son, we who have been reconciled to him through his human son. Thanks for listening and happy Easter! This week's Thinking Music has been the track, Alive, Doing It Right, Instrumental, by Mies Darling. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can listen to or download that entire track. love the trinities podcast please share this episode on social media like twitter or facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the itunes store for your country you can also support the trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode if you're interested in that please visit patreon.com trinities finally let us know what you think Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.